from Romans chapter 1, verses 8 to 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, who I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Well, friends, can I encourage you to keep uh, Romans 1 open in front of you there, in whatever form you've got it, hard copy or virtual. Um, but before we turn specifically to the passage, I want you to play a little bit of a word association game. If I say the word gospel, what other word comes to mind? Perhaps for you it's music, gospel music, because actually when you think of the gospel, actually that's, that's, that's what comes to mind for you. And if you're here because that's the only aspect of the gospel that you know, well, we're delighted that you're here. Or maybe it's truth, because of the phrase, you know, gospel truth, they just go, they go together, gospel truth. Maybe you're thinking forgiveness or faith or Jesus. Maybe when you hear gospel, you think awkward or even ashamed. You see, if any of those last couple of words come to mind for you, you don't need to be embarrassed about that. Because when the Apostle Paul thought of the word gospel, well, the word ashamed came to mind for him too. Of course, as we've just read, he was really keen to state plainly that he is not ashamed of the gospel. But the simple fact that he bothered to write that is an acknowledgement that he could have been tempted to have been ashamed of it. Or that Christians in Rome might be tempted to be ashamed of it. And I think that's really good for us to be honest, that there might be all kinds of reasons for us to be ashamed of the gospel too. Alio, can you bring up on the slide for us there um, <clears throat> this wonderful picture? Wish I could grow a beard like that. Uh, Stephen McAlpine, a wonderful Aussie author, uh, who's put it pretty bluntly in his uh, recent book, Being the Bad Guys. Next slide's got a quote for us here, Alio. Only a few generations ago, Christianity was the good guy, the solution to the bad. Then something changed. 
Over the course of the 20th century, we became just one of the guys, one option among many. And he continues, but the problem is, that's not where we are now. The tide has shifted further. Increasingly, Christianity is viewed as the bad guy. Christianity is no longer an option, it's a problem. Thanks, Alia. You see, McAlpine in this great book, which I strongly recommend to you, goes on to unpack what it means to stand firm in the gospel in the face of potentially hostile opinion. And one of the most helpful things that he does is he shows us that this is how it's always actually been, that the gospel has always had the great potential to cause offence. And so Christians have always had the great temptation to feel awkward about it, even ashamed of it. But we've just read Paul who wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And I think Paul wrote this because he knew the temptation and he wanted to encourage the Christians in Rome and God through him to us not to merely hold on to the gospel, to quietly believe the gospel, but to be all the more eager to make sure everyone gets a chance to hear it. Now let's unpack this together. Um, First, and we've got an outline here to give us some idea of where we're headed, we get a bit of an insight into the relationship between Paul and the Christians living there in Rome. We started with verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Who are these Roman Christians that Paul is so thankful for? Well, we've just read that Paul has planned many times to visit them and in chapter 15 at the end of the book verse 23 we'll read that he's actually been longing to visit them for many years. So they're not a new church and they're certainly not one of the churches that Paul planted himself. In fact we probably shouldn't think of them as just one church but kind of many churches scattered throughout the great city of Rome and that would make sense of why Paul addressed them at the beginning of the letter to to all those who are in Rome, called to be holy. It it would make sense of the long list of people that he greets at the end of the book in chapter 16. So they're churches in Rome. How did these churches end up there? Well, in Romans 16, the first first people that, that Paul sends greetings to are his close friends and co-workers called Priscilla and Aquila. If we flicked back to Acts chapter 18, we could read a little bit about them and learn that they are a Jewish background, Christian believers, who worked with Paul for a while. And then in Romans 16, we learn that, well, now they're they're back in Rome, where they've come from, leading a house church. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 10, when we read the, the account of Pentecost at the very beginning of the church's, church's awakening, well, we're told that there were visitors from Rome present there in Pentecost to hear Peter's gospel sermon. And then for another tangent, in Mark 15, that we read of Jesus' crucifixion, as we read it at Good Friday, well, we're told about a man called Simon from the town of Cyrene who carried Jesus' cross to the crucifixion. And in a very odd move, Mark told us about Simon's sons named Alexander and Rufus, which really only makes sense if Mark's original readers knew who these guys were, Alexander and Rufus. Well, in Romans 16, Paul sends greetings to a guy called Rufus. 
And so while we need to be careful about speculation, it is quite reasonable to join the dots and suggest that Rufus, one of the leaders of the church in Rome, came to faith because his dad, Simon of Cyrene, carried Jesus' cross and, and witnessed Jesus' crucifixion. And the point being, when we, when we piece all of this together, we, we get a picture that there are Christians in Rome who heard the gospel right around the time of Jesus' death and resurrection. They've been meeting together for decades in the heart of the mighty Roman Empire. And most of them have never met Paul. But he gives thanks for them because their faith is having a widespread influence. And he wants to visit them, to encourage them and to be encouraged himself by spending time with them and together to see more people come to faith in Jesus too. But we might kind of wonder, why all the effort? Like it makes sense, send them a letter, encourage them. Why all the effort to go and visit them? We've got to remember, this is not just a quick flight interstate. Paul is literally on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea in a time many years before planes. Why the persistence to visit them, longing to visit them for many years? Well, we read in verse 14, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. That's why he's really eager to visit them. Because of this strange word that he is, he's obligated. To be really clear, they don't, he doesn't owe them anything. They, they haven't paid for anything that he's got to pay back or there's no sort of debt but he has something that is his responsibility to share. Paul was obligated in that he had a moral obligation to share the gospel. He had a moral obligation that didn't depend on the status or the background of those people that he'd share with, the, the Greeks and the non-Greeks, literally the barbarians, the wise and the foolish, whatever they were like. In fact, it's not just that it didn't depend on where they'd come from, but if anything, Paul's sense of obligation was increased because the church in Rome represented this incredible diversity of wealth and poverty, of educated and uneducated, of Jewish background and Gentile background. And more than just feeling like he had to, kind of obliged, Paul was eager to preach the gospel there. That is why I am eager to preach the gospel to you, he wrote. But I think we still could be left wondering, why is it that Paul was so eager? What really was... That's, that's really what we've got to wrestle with this morning. Because it's not actually about Paul and it's not actually about the Romans. You see... In verse 16 and 17, Paul gives us the three big reasons why he's eager. I've got a sense of obligation, so I'm eager. And then he unfolds just why he is so eager to come and preach the gospel with them in Rome. Alio, on the next slide, let's see um, some of these three reasons. For, for, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, Paul could have said that he was, he was happy to preach the gospel. I'm, I'm eager because I enjoy preaching the gospel. I want to come visit you because I'm just determined. I'm really proud to preach the gospel. But he made the point that he was not ashamed. I think that's worth drilling into because it would have been really tempting to have been ashamed of the gospel. 
Remember where he's talking about, Rome, it was the central place where Caesar, the emperor, was declared as Lord, a son of the gods. That was the official Roman religion. And yet the gospel says something very different. Jesus is Lord of all, he is the son of the most high God. So it'd be very easy to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because, well, that that kind of cuts right across the official Roman authorised religion. And Rome, it was a city of power and prestige. It was, the, it was kind of the centre of the universe in the Roman Empire. But the Gospel announces a king who came in humble circumstances and died a criminal's death, executed by the Romans. Gosh, it'd be tempting to be ashamed of that. And we know it was because we even have graffiti. Thanks, Alio. We have graffiti from first century Rome. Praise God for archaeologists who find cool things like this. Now, this is called the, the Palatine Graffito because it's taken from Palatine Hill, kind of downtown first century Rome. It is a little hard to make out in this, but if we go to the next slide, you'll see I've just sort of sketched over um, the, the important images there. And then I've also given us an English translation of the Latin. Alexamenos, that's a guy's name, Alexamenos worships his God. You've got a picture there of Alexamenos worshipping a donkey hung on a cross. Because that's how foolish it seemed in first century Rome to worship a bloke who'd been crucified. There were lots of reasons to feel ashamed of the gospel in Rome. In the centre of power, only a fool would worship a crucified king. And Paul says... I am not ashamed of the gospel. Well, we could read that though and we could think, oh, Paul's amazing, he's not ashamed of the gospel, I wish I was like Paul. But this isn't actually Paul just telling us about himself as if he's telling the Romans, I'm brave enough to stand up against the ridicule. If that's all it was, then, well, we don't really have much more to go on than just the example of Paul. But actually, Paul is telling us that the gospel stands up to ridicule. He's not simply saying, kind of subjectively, I don't feel ashamed. But rather he says, I know I won't be put to shame. I think I've got this passage for us, Alio, um, from Romans 9.33. That's that's Romans chapter 9. We see how this plays out where Paul quotes from Isaiah 28. He says, As it is written, see I lay in Zion, a word for Jerusalem, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall way of describing Jesus, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. It's a way of saying the gospel can be relied upon. The gospel will not let you down. You won't be shown up as the fool. You won't be put to shame. Thanks, Elia. You see, this is the first reason why Paul was eager to preach the gospel, because it stands up to criticism. It will endure. The news that Jesus Christ is Lord, well, at times that might feel uncomfortable. It might draw all kinds of criticism and even ridicule. You might be at high school and think, gosh, stick your hand up and say, yes, I trust in Jesus. That's going to feel awkward. Even in the tea room at work, what does it mean to be known as the Jesus guy? I mean, a great way for me, personally, to shut down a conversation at a party or someone that you've just met is for when people ask me what I do as a living. 
I mean, I can kind of couch my role as a minister as being sort of a provider of community service and that makes it a little bit more palatable. People think that's really lovely. But if I tell them that I help people understand the Bible so that through that they'd appreciate who Jesus is, wow, you should see the sort of the, oh, blank stare, move on, who else can I talk to in the room, please? (laughs) But friends, I actually know that in many ways I've got it easy because I work with Christians all the time. And I want to acknowledge that for many of you, that's the opposite reality in your workplace, that to keep your job, there are very real questions about how you keep the peace, how not to ruffle too many feathers, not to cause too many waves. And, and friends, I want, to, I want you to know that I appreciate that. I've been there too. And I know how tempting it is to be ashamed of the gospel. Can I encourage you, uh, on the sermon outline that I've put up on the, on the Sunday Hub, I've just given a couple of book recommendations. So Stephen McAlpine being uh, The Bad Guys, an outstanding book, uh, but a couple of others as well. Uh, Sam Chan is another great Australian author who's talked about how to talk about Jesus without being that guy and a really tremendously helpful book that's just been published uh, by a, a really wonderful author from the States, um, McLaughlin, whose first name has just escaped me, uh, confronting Christianity, just engaging in a really winsome but, but very honest way about some of the awkward questions that might be posed about Christianity. I really want to encourage you to, to wrestle with those. Because we all know that no one wants to be found on the wrong side of history. And Paul says that he is eager to preach the gospel because he knows that the gospel is not on the wrong side of history. It is the news at the centre of history that defines history and we can, be proved, we can be confident that it will prove right in the end. We will not be put to shame. So that's Paul's first reason, but the second flows from it. I'm, I'm eager to preach the gospel because I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to all who believe. I think this is worth breaking down this sentence a little bit. The gospel brings salvation... There's an awkward truth but it, because it implies that we need saving, right? And we're going to talk a lot more about that next week and in the coming weeks after that. So we'll just hit pause on that. But it is helpful to know that when Paul refers to salvation, uh, as he unpacks it, he's not just talking about becoming Christian but in the sense of a final rescue at the end of our lives. And that's helpful for us to say today because that's why we don't just preach the gospel to people who haven't heard it but every week here in our growth groups, in our lives together, we want to encourage Christian people with the gospel too because it's the gospel that holds us fast to that salvation at the final end. Well, the gospel brings salvation, it brings salvation to all who believe and this is why it is the gospel of grace because it's God's rescue is for all who believe, not all who deserve it or who earn it, or even consistently obey it, the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation for those who believe. And it's the power of God. The gospel is where God has chosen to locate His power to rescue people. Now, our world is constantly looking for salvation, for rescue, in all kinds of places. We've got a budget come up and people are clamouring for them to get it right and and rescue those in need. We want political leaders to get the budget right, we want life experiences 
that help us to feel like life is the right way up and the way it should be and to rescue us from either the mundane or the terrible. We look to relationships to rescue us, provide a sense of meaning and hope. But here Paul reminds us that it's only the gospel that has the power to rescue, the power for salvation. And I think even as Christians, I wonder whether we really believe this, that the gospel is God's power. Now think of all of the other things that we're tempted to look towards. For one thing, it's very clear, it's, it's not going to be us, that compelling speech, amazing music, our charisma. It's not going to be some sort of carefully planned mission strategy. If those mission outreach events that we put on at the end of the year are, if they're just right, warm, welcoming, brilliant content, beautiful aesthetic, then it'll happen. It's, it's not even God's miraculous signs and wonders, God can do them, but actually that's not how he has chosen to rescue people. And for some Christians, the biggest concern, it's, it's not out there, it's what other Christians will think. We'll come across that in the book of Romans too, that some will think that the gospel is too restrictive, it's too exclusive, that surely God has other ways of saving, that for others, the gospel, it's, it's too relaxed, it's too forgiving. Surely God requires us all to step into a certain mould. And... But actually, it is the gospel that is the power of God that brings salvation. It's only through the message of the gospel spoken and received that God rescues. No one anywhere or at any time will be rescued in any other way except by hearing and believing the news that Jesus is Lord of all. And if you feel like that's a big claim, that's okay, we're going to come back to that over the coming weeks too. But that is why Paul was eager to preach the gospel. That's why he felt the moral obligation, because the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes it. There is no other way. So Paul says he's eager to preach the gospel because he's not ashamed of it. It will come through in the end. And because it's the power of God to bring salvation to all who believe, there is no other way. And there's a third reason, because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. As we saw last week, the gospel is centred on God and as we dig deeper, we're going to see in particular that it is the righteousness of God that is revealed. By now, I'm sure you're not surprised to hear me say, there'll be more on that in the coming weeks. (laughs) In fact, the coming months. In fact, righteousness, that word, that concept, is probably the big theme for Romans chapters 1 to 4. There's lots for us to learn along the way. But for now, Alio, can you take us to this summary slide for us? We're not going to see this unpacked here. I just want to give you a, a heads up of where we're headed that the righteousness of God helps us understand three things. It's God's character. God is righteous in that He is right and He is good. But the righteousness of God is also God's actions. God does righteousness. His deeds, what He does, they are always right and good. And to be really clear, God has always been righteous and He's always acted righteously. He's shown that again and again throughout the Old Testament. 
But now, in the gospel of Jesus, now the righteousness of God has been kind of definitively revealed. What was a little bit blurry, the, the puzzle pieces that were hard to put together, the picture that seemed a little incomplete, that has ultimately been revealed in Jesus Christ. But actually more than something that just is in God or done by God, the gospel we will see helps us to understand that the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel is a righteousness given by God. It's something that He shares with us, something that He declares about us. The gospel reveals that the righteousness of God, because we, we see in Jesus God's character, His love, His faithfulness, His justice... We, we see in Jesus the, the deeds of God's righteous grace in sending His Son for our forgiveness. But actually the Gospel reveals the righteousness from God because we see that He gives us His righteousness for all who believe it. He doesn't just say, yep, your sins have been forgiven. If you trust in Jesus, your sins have been forgiven. It's not merely wiping away the debt that we owe but the gospel announces a new life for those united with Jesus, our accounts credited with His righteousness. Not just our debts cleared, but His righteousness given to us. This is the wonder of the gospel. This is the goodness of the gospel for those who believe. That as we receive the news that Jesus is Lord, who the Lord who died for us, God declares a righteousness for us. As He looks on us, he, he sees us as He sees His own Son. And so as Paul sums up, this is a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And this cuts to the heart of every one of us, I think. Because we think if it's that good... God isn't just showing us Himself and doing great things for us. He is giving us His own righteousness. Well, I must have to do something pretty incredible to deserve that. But the truth is, we're simply not capable of doing anything to deserve it or to earn it. So the good news for us is that this righteousness, it is by faith from first to last, as Paul wrote in verse 17. It's a righteousness from God that is seen and received by faith. God's generosity, not our merit. And I think even if we've got our heads around the gift of grace, well, we're still so often tempted to think that, well, somehow I need to continue in God's righteousness by, by my own hard work, by my generous giving, by my extensive CV of volunteer activity. But once again the good and wonderful, sweet news of the Gospel is that it's actually from first to last, from beginning to end. That actually God continues to make His righteousness known and to grow us in it, simply as we trust Him. The righteousness of God is by faith from first to last. It's a life that is brought into willing submission to the news of the gospel that Jesus is Lord of all and as we trust that, 
and submit to that. That's how God grows us in his righteousness. Paul says, this righteousness of God is revealed by faith from first to last, just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. And so any preacher wants to, wants to illustrate the point, right, so that we can sort of understand how this lives out. And it struck me that that's exactly actually what Paul does with this little quote there, as it is written, verse 17, the righteous will live by faith. He's not just making a statement, he's illustrating his point. And so I actually thought, rather than illustrating with his life in our world today, I want to take you back to the world of Habakkuk. Because if Paul thought that illustrated the point, then I reckon it's going to do it well for us too. Habakkuk is who Paul is quoting from here. Habakkuk was a prophet of God who lived in Jerusalem about 600 years before Jesus. Right at the time that Babylon was rising as the international superpower. Over the centuries, Israel had spiralled into corruption and confusion and Jerusalem, the capital city, it was just a hotbed of sin and, and abuse, the, the abuse of power, the abuse of the vulnerable. And right there in the middle of it, in his faithfulness, living a life of the obedience of faith, is Habakkuk. And he finds himself wondering, how could God allow so much evil in his own people to go unpunished? When is he going to fulfill his promises to rescue those who trust him? That's the big question for Habakkuk. And I wonder if you can relate to that. You see people who claim to be Christian, conducting themselves in all kinds of messed up and ungodly ways and you find yourself asking God lots of questions. How long, God? What does it imply about whether the gospel really changes anything? What does it actually look like to live obediently, trusting in your promises, wondering if it's actually all going to pan out in the end because at the moment it just seems like it's this spiral of chaos and sin? Well, God answered Habakkuk's question. He said, just wait. And Habakkuk would see God's justice done. Habakkuk didn't need to be ashamed or afraid because his faith in God's character and God's promises, that would be vindicated. Because God was sending Babylon to punish evil Jerusalem. What? (laughs) cried out Habakkuk. Babylon? Those, they're they're terrible. You can't take a greater evil to deal with this evil. You want to see someone pulling their hair out, trying to wrestle with God? This is Habakkuk. How could the holy God even associate with such an evil empire? How could God possibly allow such evil and keep his promises to save his people? And friends, maybe you can relate to questions like that too. You look on at the mess of the world and, and the promises of the gospel, they just seem so far away. You find yourself wondering if you will end up on the wrong side of history. And with Habakkuk, you wonder whether the promises of God, they'll, they'll just crumble away in the face of you know, some new version of Babylon. The people that thumb their nose at God and his kingdom... I think in the Christian version of of the promises of God that Habakkuk knew, you might find yourself wondering what the obedience of faith looks like when standing with Jesus means, as Stephen McAlpine said, people think of you as part of the problem, not part of the solution. You might wonder whether it's worth standing firm in the gospel promises that we have in Jesus.
Well, God answered Habakkuk again. Wait. Trust and wait and God's justice will be done. And and this is the core of the answer that God gave Habakkuk, which Paul quotes from. Behold, the enemy, who he's talking about, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. See, God was saying to Habakkuk that his faith in God's promise of salvation, it would be vindicated. He would not be put to shame. In the face of ridicule and hardship, he did not need to be ashamed because God would save. Not because Israel deserved it, but because God is gracious. God has always saved by grace through faith. He has always been consistent in his righteousness and and faithful to his promises. And so Habakkuk was not ashamed of the promises of God and he did wait, living obediently in the chaos by trusting in the promises of God. And Paul uses that to illustrate his point. That this righteousness from God, it, it comes from by faith from first to last, just that is written, the righteous will live by faith, trusting in the promises of God. See, friends, we've covered a lot of ground, but I hope that through it we can, we can actually see with Paul that we too can say we're not ashamed of the gospel. That like Paul, we're eager for people to hear it and to put their faith in Jesus because like Paul, even in the midst of the Roman Empire with all its claims to power and its offer of salvation and the confusion and the chaos of the world, we know everyone needs rescuing and the gospel of Jesus is where God has located his power to save everyone who will believe. You, know, you and I, we are like Paul. If we trust in Jesus, well, we've been given the great joy and the privilege of seeing the righteousness of God, of receiving it, made known to us in Jesus. But perhaps unlike Paul, none of us, we haven't been appointed apostles by Jesus himself. And perhaps only a few of us will ever publicly preach the gospel but we can all share his heart. We can all be eager to see the gospel go out, just like the faith of the Roman Christians was going out through all the world. Because if we've known the righteousness of God that's been made known in the gospel, then that, that grips us. Because that's rescue. That is good news. And it's God's power to save through nothing we've done, but all 100% grace because of what he's done. So let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we know too easily the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel because announcing that Jesus is Lord of all, it has the potential to cause offence. It has the potential to have us standing out very different from our peers and our friends and our colleagues. And Father, you know that we feel the concern that we might be found on the wrong side of history. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be like Paul, who himself points us back to the prophet Habakkuk. And 
your people throughout the ages who have stood firm in the goodness of your promises, trusting that we will not be put to shame. And Father, we thank you that we have so much more than Habakkuk ever saw because we've seen Jesus. And in him, you've shown us your heart that is right and good and overflowing in love. Father, thank you that you've shown us your deeds that are right and gracious and mighty to save. Father, on top of all of that, thank you that you teach us that you don't just show us your righteousness, you give it to us as we trust in Jesus, that you view us as you view your dearly loved son. Please help us to believe it, that you might grow in us us a heart that is eager to share it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.